Romans chapter 11. Romans, the 11th chapter. We've come to this portion of Scripture that brings us face to face again with the reality of God's credibility in keeping His sustaining promises that He's made to Israel, but also we come to the theological question of God's sovereignty in salvation yet again. As you know, if you're a student of the Bible, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are certainly battlegrounds for Arminian and Calvinistic debates, but for our purposes, we're looking at how not only that theology works into our life, but how Paul's argument works into the doctrine of God's sovereignty in electing and in sustaining and in saving the nation of Israel. We're going to look at verses 7 through 10 this morning, but I want to read the first 10 verses just to get the contextual flow. Romans chapter 11. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin, and God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew, or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have they've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars, and I alone am left. And they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking It has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block, and retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not, and break or bend their backs forever. You may have heard the story told. I know my mentor and friend, John MacArthur, often uses this illustration, but it's so traumatic and graphic. In 1984, a jet from... Avianca Airlines crashed into a mountain in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made a horrifying discovery. After plowing through and dealing with the wreckage, they they came to that black box that records the conversations that were having in the they were having in the cockpit between the pilots, between the ground, and even with the plane itself. What was eerie was in the seconds before this crash, an automatic response was initiated by the plane because it sensed the mountain coming into clear focus and a crash that was imminent. 
And in a computerized, shrill voice, in English, you could hear repeatedly on this recording, pull up, pull up, pull up. Inexplicably, the pilot snapped back, shut up, gringo. And you could hear the click where he turned off the warning system. A few seconds later, the recording ends because the plane smashed into a mountain, killing everyone aboard. As tragic as that is, it is such a metaphor and such a living illustration of what happens in the human heart regarding the warning systems and the warners or the prophets of God himself. In the Old Testament, God sent prophets to warn the Jews Israel, his people, over and over to repent, over and over articulating the uselessness of their own efforts, their sacrificial system for their own merit that God would be impressed. And over and over they pushed back and rejected God. In fact, verse 3 says of chapter 11, they actually killed these men. They killed the prophets. Not only did they reject their message, they rejected the men and killed them for giving them God's word. Now, where we are in Romans 11, Paul is stressing the point that God has certainly not rejected his people Israel. He made promises to them, promises about geography and land, promises about being his people and a kingdom of priests forever, promises about a future and a millennial reign, promises that were so specific that to wrap them into what he's doing in the nature of the church would be a, an exaggeration beyond reason. God is not done with the nation of Israel. But, as we've said over and over, what happened in the mid-40s in putting Israel back on the map is not that regathering. He's speaking of his fulfillment of the promises of Israel where they would hear the prophets who prophesied of the Son, the Lord Jesus, and receive him and believe the gospel. Any explanation about God's sovereignty and Israel must take into account that the majority of natural Israel is now in a state of spiritual insensitivity. But that leads us to hear Paul explain to us this. How do we make sense of God's promise and plan if Israel is currently in this state of rejection? How can we make sense of the Jews' rejection of Jesus? How did Israel get it so wrong? If he is the Jewish Messiah, why did the Jews not see that or hear that or understand that or receive that? And that leads us to verses 7 through 10. We're going to diagram this, outline it, by looking at three traumatic realities of Israel's rejection of the gospel. Three traumatic, and I chose that word carefully. These are trauma-filled. These are heavy. There's a lot of gravitas in these. Three traumatic realities of Israel's rejection of the gospel. Paul has to explain this. If God's going to finish his promises to Israel, and they've currently rejected the Messiah in mass, with a few exceptions, Paul being one of them, then how does this make sense? Let's break it down and just follow Paul's reasoning. Number one, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Verse 7. What then? Stop right there. 
What then is based on the statement he just made in verse 6? If it, we got to stop and say, what is it? Salvation. If salvation is by grace, why is that so important? He tells us in the next phrase, it is no longer on the basis of works. doesn't come out of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Paul is saying, in effect, where do we go from here? How do we make sense of this situation if God has set his love and his election on Israel, but only the remnant, his elect, then what's the current state and future of Israel? And his answer begins with grace. What then? If grace is grace because God gives it, if grace is nullified, if we try to earn it and and seek God's favor, then what then? What do we do with this? We find something interesting about Israel here. They were and they are seeking something. What then? How do we make sense of this? What Israel is seeking. And then he concludes, Israel has not obtained. What is Israel seeking? He's already already answered that. Look back at chapter 9, verse 31. But Israel, seeking or pursuing a law of righteousness, a system of righteousness. Pursuing that, they did not arrive at that law. They tried to work themselves into a place where God would be impressed. They couldn't do it. Why, Paul says, verse 32, because they did not pursue it, righteousness, by faith, but as though it was by works. And they stumbled over the stumbling stone. There's the central issue. Israel had tried to earn God's favor by doing more and trying harder, even adding more commands to the Torah. They still did that that to this day. You you can be a a meritous Jew if you clip your fingernails and toenails in a certain order, if you walk only a certain number of steps from your house, if you don't drive a car on Saturdays, if you, as we had a, a neighbor once come who's an Orthodox Jew, come and ask my son to turn off a light switch for them because they couldn't do that kind of work on Saturday, on the Sabbath. They're pursuing righteousness by works. That's the issue. Romans 10, verse 2. For I testify about them that they, the Jews, have a zeal for God. They're they're passionate about God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. They don't know what they're doing. What what do you mean? He says, for not knowing, this is that knowledge they don't have, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. There it is. Seeking to establish their own. 931, pursuing a law of righteousness, seeking to... Established their own, they did not subject themselves, here it is, to the righteousness of God. The first eight chapters tell us the righteousness of God is demonstrated in the Son of God giving himself up as a sacrifice for sinners. It's Jesus. Now, religious Jews are serious people. I know many of them. Their passion is to pursue a righteousness through ceremony, through effort, through superstition. But alongside that pursuit is the arrogance against others. That they're the chosen ones. They're the people of promise. Everyone else is excluded. 
No one else is as good and as as favored as they are. You say, that's, that's pretty harsh. Jesus illustrates this in Luke chapter 18. You know this passage very well. Luke 18, 9. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. They established their righteousness not even based on their own obedience to the the self-defined regulations that God hadn't even required. They evaluated their righteousness by, by evaluating others and sinners and saying, we're not as bad as that guy, as that woman, so we're okay. And then he illustrates this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, one who was very righteous in his own eyes, and the other, a tax collector. Verse 11 says, The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. That's the problem right there. Whenever your prayer starts to yourself, that's not a good place to start. He was praying this to himself. Now, some people were saying, well, maybe he was just praying silently. No, no. He was praying very, very loudly. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Here he is. Swindlers unjust, adulterers, or even, and he points a guy out, even like this tax collector. Can you imagine the audacity, the arrogance of saying, I'm glad, God, I'm not like him. You accept me, not him. I'm not as bad as that guy, all comparison. Then he gets his resume. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. He must have had to point with a very specific finger because, next verse says, but the tax collector standing some distance away, he wouldn't even come close on the temple, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. In other words, to pray. But he was beating his chest and saying, oh God, be merciful to me Not the one who fasts twice a week. Not the one who pays tithes of all he gets. Not the one who is unlike other people. Be merciful to me, the sinner. He says, I need righteousness that I am utterly incapable of accomplishing, earning, or living. I'm I'm done you got to be merciful to me, a sinner. Don't look at me based on what I've done. I can't earn your favor. I don't have a list like this guy does. Just be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus evaluates these two men. This is what he says. I tell you, this man, the, the tax collector, this man went down to his house saved, justified, righteous. That's our word from Romans. Rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the illustration of this Jewish Pharisee who was looking at all he did, these Jewish tasks of fasting and paying tithes, and says, I'm doing that. He's not. I'm righteous. He's not. Just the opposite. He was looking for his righteousness in what he did. The tax collector was looking for his righteousness in heaven. Paul says that the righteousness the Jews were and are seeking for cannot be found. You see it there in the text? They have not obtained it. The it is righteousness. It's being 
found just before God. Now that's a pretty discouraging moment. But there's another, a second traumatic reality of Israel's rejection of the gospel that comes in verse 7, and that's this. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. Number two, God's electing choice has preserved a remnant. His preserving, electing choice has held on to a remnant. Look back at verse 5 for a minute. In the same way then, there has also come to be at this present time a, what is it? A remnant. A few. And Paul says earlier in the chapter, I'm proof. I'm a Jew and I believe the gospel. Verse 7b. But those who were chosen obtained it. What is the it? We've already established the it. Righteousness, salvation. The ones who were nullifying grace, verse 6, by their works, had not obtained it by their works. But the ones who were chosen obtained it, grace, salvation, righteousness, by faith. But here's what he, where he puts the accent. They were chosen. Here we are back at the doctrine of divine election. Remember we said 9 through 11 is predominantly about God's choice, God's election, God's predestination, God's foreknowledge. Yes, God stands with outstretched arms as Chapter 10, verse 21 says, Yes, whoever believes can obtain eternal life. Remember chapter 10, verse 11. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. God stands with outstretched arms in verse 21. Yes, the responsibility is to understand and believe. But no one will do that unless they are given that gift of faith by God. It's, it comes back to the doctrine of depravity. Dead people can't respond physically. Paul says we are spiritually dead. Bob emphasized that this morning in our call to worship. We're spiritually dead. What, what can we contribute? What can we do? Knowing that puts us in the, in the humble, submissive category of, oh God, if you don't choose, if you don't foreknow, if you don't predestine, if you don't awaken, if you don't open the eyes, if you don't open the ears, if you don't give understanding, there's no one who will on their own. We're utterly incapable of that. Only those who are chosen by God and awakened by God will believe. Now, this is nothing new. Let me just take you on the tour that we've been going on for the last few months. Romans 8, 28. You know it well. We know that God causes all things to work together for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Called according to his purpose, which leads him then to say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. No footnotes, no writers, no explanation. Just says it. He goes on in chapter 9, verse 23. And God did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand. God chose vessels of mercy before there was a world. 
chapter, uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. When Gentiles heard of salvation going out, they began rejoicing, glorifying. These are Gentiles. These are the, the first generation non-Jewish believers who understand the sovereignty of God and salvation. When the Gentiles heard this, this is Acts 13, 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed or predestined to eternal life believed. There it is in one verse. The ones who are predestined believed. How do you know you're believe, that, 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 that you're predestined? You believe. Why would you believe? Because you're predestined. Ephesians 1.4, just as God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, we should always give thanks to God for you, my brethren, my beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is unmistakable. No one can deny that God foreknows, predestines, chooses before the foundation of the world. No one can deny that the Bible says that. All you can do is say, well, I know that's what it says, but I don't believe that's what it means. And that's not a good hermeneutic. Yes. Yes. Chapter 10 is true. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And yes, only those whom God has chosen will call on the Lord to be saved. You say, how do you work that out? I hope you've heard me for the last few years. I can't, but I believe in both. And the older I get, and the, I hope the more mature I get as a believer, I'm able to just smile and say, okay, I believe in both, but I don't understand how they come together. Regarding the nation of Israel, though, he's preserved a remnant. He's preserved that remnant. He talked about that in verse 5. The remnant according to God's gracious choice. There it is again. Not all Israel is doomed. Not all Israel is apostate. Not all Israel is, chapter 10, verse 21, disobedient and obstinate. Paul says, I'm proof of that. I believe the gospel. And he also says here that there are those whom God has preserved as a remnant. Now, that's important. There is a future for Israel, national Israel, who will all be believers, who will all be Christians. There's a future for national Israel, national Israel. But right now, there is a present for Jews who will believe that the Messiah is. Let Paul be your example that if you know someone who is Jewish, see if they're chosen. See if they're in the remnant. You say, how do I know that? Tell them the gospel and see what they do and how they respond. Which leads us to really the heart of this passage and the most traumatic part. Three traumatic realities of Israel's rejection of the gospel. Israel has not obtained what it seeks, which is righteousness. God's electing choice has preserved a remnant who have believed. And number three, it's almost hard to read. God hardens the hearts of those who reject his grace. Little phrase at the end of verse 7. The rest, not those who were chosen, and the rest, 
were hardened. This is a passive verb. It means someone did the hardening to them. The context is that God is the one who hardened. And if that's troubling to you, all you have to do is go back in chapter 9 and understand that God is the one who hardened the heart of Pharaoh. God is an absolute sovereign control. The same sun that melts the clay, melts the wax, hardens the clay. You say, well, that sounds like double predestined. Predestination to me, it does to me too. And the point is, you say, well, God's in charge of everyone. Well, yeah, the, the question is not, does God doom some and save others? That's the answer. The question is, why would he save any? Why would any of us be objects of his choice? You say, how can God harden someone's heart? Isn't he in the business of saving people? Why would he harden someone? Parao in the Greek, harden is, it means to callous. It's an interesting word. It literally means a callous, like a carpenter would have calloused hands. If you've played the guitar or you know someone who has, you, you know a little bit about calluses. Um, calluses develop on your fingers if you play guitar. And when you first begin, it hurts. You can actually play a guitar and look, and you'll have the lines of, your, your, of the strings in your fingers, and it hurts. You can play to the point of blisters. You can play to the point of bleeding because those fingers, that tender flesh, is soft on that coiled guitar string. If you play more and more and more, it gets harder and harder. And then you don't feel any pain only the sensation of the guitar string. I'm not suggesting you do this, but if you know someone who plays guitar and plays regularly, they can take a needle or a pen and stick it right in the end of their finger, and it, it, there's no pain. The senses have been gone. They've, they've become callous there. There's no feeling in there. It's a good thing in the, heart, in the fingers of a guitar player. It's not a good thing in the heart of someone responding to God. Or you're callous. You have no sensibility, no sensitivity. no, no fit. That's the word here. The word here literally is they become calloused, hardened. The skin has become hard. The rest were hardened. Those who were not in the remnant. Now Paul is going to appeal to Moses and to David, the two greatest men, prophets in, in Israel. He's going to appeal to them in just a, a moment in the next verse. Before he does, I want to lay some groundwork, lest you say, how can Paul be so hard to listen to the incarnate God in flesh, Jesus Christ, who uses the same reasoning and the same logic? John chapter 12, verse 37. But though Jesus had performed many signs and before them, they were not believing him. Isn't that the, pr the problem? He's performed signs, they're not believing him. You say, what was going on? This is, this is, listen. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Listen, this is Jesus speaking. For this reason, they not would not, they could not believe. For Isaiah said, He, God, 
He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. What? Jesus says, you're not believing in me because your heart is hard, your ears are dull, your eyes are dim. Why are their ears unable to hear? Why can their eyes not see? Because God shut their eyes and their ears. That's hard. That's heavy. My friend Steve Kreloff, he's actually the pastor to Philip and uh, uh, Trevor from Florida, our seminary students. He's a believing Jew who's also a pastor. He wrote a little book on the subject, and he writes this. Israel's long history reveals that because they did not want to believe God's truth down through the ages, God hardened them to the point that when the real truth, Jesus Christ, finally stood in their midst, they could not recognize him for who he was. This is one of the most profound issues in the Bible. That is the hardening of the hearts of the nation of Israel and the hardening of the hearts of unbelievers. How can we even process this? Paul has just said that only the elect remnant found what they were looking for, right standing before God. And the book of Romans has repeatedly, all the way from the first chapter, taught us that this right standing is based on faith, not works. This rest of the Jews here in this verse were pursuing the idea that they had to be right before God by doing more and trying harder and works would be enough and they became hardened in their sinful pursuits and in their sinful ways, in their sinful efforts. So now Paul does the same thing that Jesus does. He splices actually two verses together here in, um, in this passage. He puts Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10 together to demonstrate that God's active hardening of the rebellious hearts of the Jews in the Old Testament was a result of his sovereignty and a response to their obstinance. Just as it is written, verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, fumbling and bumbling, not able to perceive, a spirit of misunderstanding, not understanding. God gave them eyes to see not and ears to hear not. Down to this very day. It's a progressive spiritual disease. Two observations here. First, this hardening goes all the way back into the Old Testament days. You can see it manifest in, in the northern tribe being taken away into uh, uh, captivity in Assyria, the southern tribe being taken away in captivity to Babylon. I mean, those two pictures, God sends prophets over and over. Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, um, Hosea, over and over. Repent, repent, or God's going to come in judgment. Repent, please, I'm warning you, I'm warning you. And they... They stiff-armed the prophets. They killed the prophets, verse 3 says. And their hardening was in concert with God's hardening. God gave them, God gave them 
the spirit of stupor and unseeing eyes and unhearing ears. Remember, the hard hearts of Israel are what paved the way for the rejection of Jesus. They weren't... They didn't know the scriptures well enough to even understand. He chides them over and over, the Lord does, about, have you not read? Do you not know? Then he adds David in verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Meal tables are supposed to be places of safety, sweetness, peace, shalom. But the very table of the godless one is a trap. It's this false sense of safety and security. The very things that people but trust in become the very things that will ultimately damn them. Psalm 69, 22 to 23. That's where he goes here. And then verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and break or bend their backs forever. That's just another way of saying, make them disabled. When someone had a bent or a broken back in the ancient Near East, when they became disabled or, or handicapped in any way or infirm, there, was, there were no surgeons. There, you're, you're out of commission. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and let them be out of commission. Bend their backs forever. Now, if you're like me, you, you look at this and you go, that's heavy. God is closing eyes. God is closing ears. God is keeping people from being clear and understanding. God is the one who's doing this. God is the one who darkens and hardens the heart. God is the one who does that. Surely this is only Pauline. Well, you already heard Jesus say it in John chapter 12. Listen to a very familiar passage, Matthew 13, verse 1. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. He got in a boat, sat down. The whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables, in illustrations, saying, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns and the thorns came up and choked them out and others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Then Jesus says this, He who has ears, let him let him hear. And the disciples, you can hear them kind of scratching their, see them scratching their heads. They came up and said to him, Lord, uh, why do you speak to them so unclearly? Why, why, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted. There's our predestination again. It has been given. There's God's choice to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it has not been granted. Same language. For whoever has, to him shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while they see, while seeing, they don't see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, 
the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, now we go to the same passage Paul went to. You keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For with the heart, for the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear. They close their eyes. They've closed their eyes, and God's closed their eyes. Which is it? Yes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. But blessed, blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. What's Jesus saying here? I have chosen to confound them with an unclear, listen, with an unclear message because they don't have eyes and ears to perceive the truth. Now, lest you think, well, that's not fair, Jesus goes on and explains the parable in very elementary terms to them. This is what it means. He didn't just leave them. He did explain it, and they still didn't get it. That's for another sermon, but you understand of the four gospel responses, three were not saving responses, and only one was. So what do we do with this? What can we do with this passage? Let me give you some some things to think about. Let me beg you to not be like these Jews who were disinterested and hardened to gospel truth. You say, well, they couldn't help it. God did it. Remember what Psalm 95 says? Do not Harden your heart. Man has responsibility to play in this. You say, well, who hardens it? I think that you read Romans 1. God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. You begin hardening your heart, giving yourself over to sin, and finally God says that's enough and takes his sustaining grace away. When does that happen? I don't know. He can save a thief on the cross. I'm never going to give up. But understand the principle is you harden your heart and God will accompany you in that hardening. Don't trust your instinct that you're okay with God. That will only harden your heart. Don't tell yourself, I'll take care of God and my soul later. But right now I'm just going to do my own thing. In a sermon to youth, to young people, and Jonathan Edwards, one of my historical heroes, was preaching directly to students. He was junior high and high school students, maybe some college age, because you went to college at 15. So uh, junior high, senior high, collegians, he was speaking to them. He had this sermon for them. I want to give you some quotes that Edwards says in the same issue of hardening yourself. Just some excerpts from that sermon. He says, if you put it off remembering Christ, even intending to do so for a little while, 10 to 1, you'll put it off until youth is passed, and 10 to 1, 10 to 1, that you'll put it off until life is passed. You always think that you have tomorrow. Spurgeon says tomorrow is the devil's day. Edwards goes on, they who dedicate themselves entirely to God early in their lives give their whole lives to God, which must be more acceptable to him than to dedicate only a small part at the latter end of their lives after they've given the greatest part of their lives to sin and Satan. 
He says this, Ordinarily, those persons who seek salvation in their youth have not done so much to harden and stupefy. There's our words. Harden and stupefy their hearts as others will do. They haven't sinned so often against their consciences. The more often acts of sin are repeated against one's conscience, the more softness there is to sin in the conscience. You want to sin more? Nothing hardens the heart so much as that which most awakens it. You know what he's saying? If you keep hearing warnings, just like Israel, if you keep hearing prophetical sermons and messages that are telling you the word of God and you keep hearing warnings from parents, friends, sermons, books, and you ignore them, you are willfully hardening your heart and God will harden it with you. He concludes that sermon by saying this. Experience teaches that when persons spend their youth in sin, and obviously this is all of us, not just students, when youth spend their lives in sin, God often leaves them to the hardness of heart all their lifetime afterwards. God is provoked by how many sin away their youth and flatter themselves that they will one day seek God when youth is past, but God is provoked by their presumption and leaves them to go on as they have been. This idea of hardening speaks to the idea of self-hardening and procrastination of responding to the truth and being spiritually sensitive to what God has said. So we're left with two things. Understanding God is not done with Israel. Most of them seek their own righteousness, but they're not seeking faith in Christ. But that's also the truth in the world, isn't it? Is there anything so different about you and me? Anything so different about the people driving up and down Mission Road? Thinking we're okay, having an instinct or intuition that God will be merciful to me, the righteous one in comparison to the sinner, instead of being undone, and saying, oh God, I need your mercy and I need your grace because I am a foolish, wicked, obstinate, blind, and deaf, misunderstanding, stupefied sinner. Please, by your grace, somehow, independent of me, independent of my effort, in spite of my life pursuits and the idolatry of my heart, please, Save me. You know, I worry about our church. I, I don't stay up late for very many things, but I've had lots of nights tossing and turning, thinking of our church in general and some of our church in specific who, who are hardening their hearts. who think there'll be time, who aren't taking God seriously. Let me beg you to realize God is taking you seriously. And he stands with, stands with outstretched arms today and says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I, I will give you rest. Edward says, the door of mercy is flung open today saying, sinners, come in. 
Don't be like these Jews who thought they were okay for any and every reason besides their standing in the Lord Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, his intercession for us now.